Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. We're still looking here at chapters four to six. And last time we talked about chapters six, so now it's time to back up and talk about chapters four to five. And how else to read Lacan except backwards, retroactively? I never mind doing this with his work. Our point is to try and thread the needle through the concepts, through the arguments, so that it becomes as crystallized as possible. Sometimes that means moving backwards. In fact, typically in Lacanian thought, it means moving backwards. So on the docket now, we have chapters four through five, the central topic of which, not coincidentally, is repetition. Repetition, which is, of course, retroactive, and all in the field of jouissance that we've been discussing, a field of jouissance characterized by loss reciprocally constitutive with gain, the loss of a forbidden sexual jouissance, and the gain of a consumerist surplus enjoyment. We'll talk about both again, do a little bit of review. And in fact, that's exactly where we should start with just recapping a little bit of what we've got here. Recall how this all plays out. The subject is bound to signification. This is the typology of the subject, the signifiers or represents the subject to another signifier. All that shit amounts to saying that the subject is bound up with signification and showing in precise detail how that knot is tied. That's the great addition that all of this hard work provides, is we can actually describe how the knot of unary trait one, unary trait two, turned master signifier linked up to knowledge is tied. We can describe in detail how the S1 and the S2 are related and how their relationship, differential through and through, affects the split subject as a mark in the living individual. So what you have here is five or six terms that you can string together into a really clear description of how precisely the subject is bound up with signification. We've been working this one hard, and I think you all understand it at this point. When Lacan says the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier, there's a lot of elaborate conceptual work that's happening behind that hypothesis to show how it all hangs together, giving us this topology of the subject. That then again, Lacan is going to add little a as a production in the field of jouissance that also occurs here. And that's where we left it last time. The subject is bound to signification in a very detailed, precise way that we've been describing. And in this way, it is also the subject immersed in a field of knowledge, specifically a knowledge process not a fixed, stable, coherent, consistent, closed body of knowledge that we see in disciplinary formations 
or at least desired in disciplinary formations. But instead, knowledge is a process that is open-ended, whose bottom is continually dropping out. And for good reason. Knowledge, like language, benefits from an open-ended structure, and it withers and dies whenever closure sets in. It stagnates in these ways. Knowledge and language, the same in this capacity. This being bound up with signification, though, places the subject into connection with a field of knowledge, a knowledge process. A knowledge process that also, and here's the new part we're working on, inserts the subject into the field of jouissance, a field of jouissance characterized by loss and gain. So what Lacan is working up here, theoretically, in Seminar 17, is a connection between knowledge and enjoyment. And what he's arguing is that the structure of knowledge, its logical necessary operation, is one of repetition and difference, where the same topology of the subject reiterates in the diagrams that we've already seen and discussed in our previous series and in this one. His point is that jouissance is embedded in the iterativity of that structure. The way that the topology of the subject just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. This is the big barred other, as the S2s grow to encompass each one. And the big barred other enjoys at the level of the repetition of that structure and progressively more encompassing iterations of itself. This is what we've established up to this point. This is what we've been working toward. We can now talk about how exactly knowledge enjoys. And Lacan, as we're going to see, also talks about how language enjoys. It enjoys at the level of iterability, at the level of repetition of its own structure again and again and again. The state loves nothing more than to keep on counting. The state loves nothing more than to restart its count again and again and again. That is where these structures enjoy. And for Lacan, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about the way a structure enjoys. There's a jouissance that is endemic to knowledge as a process that is continually finding an inner and outer limit and resetting itself reinstituting its basic practices. That, for Lacan, is a kind of enjoyment. And that's what's at stake here. Knowledge is a means of jouissance. So when the subject gets bound up with signifiers, S1s and S2s, S2s that function as fields of knowledge, they get also immersed in a field where jouissance is produced. That's what the bottom right-hand quadrant of the Master's Discourse indicates. Little a as something that is produced from the S1's link to the S2. In other words, from signification, the same signification that marks, designates, and integrates the subject into itself. The subject is not, in other words, the only thing effected or produced by language use. Language use also produces enjoyment, jouissance, knowledge as a means of enjoyment. Lacan keeps hitting this point again and again. So when the subject through the signifier 
becomes immersed in a field of knowledge, they also gain access to a certain type of enjoyment. It is enjoyment within and well after the institution of language, of the symbolic, of knowledge, of all of these structures who have the basic operativity of the big barred other. They seek totality but never get there. They seek completion but never arrive. They seek consistency but always bump up against their own internal, endemic, imminent inconsistency. This is what Lacan's been working on from seminar 14 all the way up to 17. He's working on these structures that have an imminent inconsistency, an extimate void, a constitutive void around which they're structured and around which they're constantly dancing and moving and shifting. Lacan's point here is that discourse affects a subject and immerses that subject in a field of knowledge that as one of its effects is jouissance, has jouissance as something that spins out from it constantly. And the field of jouissance that emerges from the signification to which the subject is bound and beholden, I've said, is a two-part field of jouissance. One in which sexual enjoyment is lost and surplus enjoyment is gained at precisely the same time. This is what we've been working on. This is what we've been talking about. You'll even recall how central and core this is to what Lacan is up to in 17. I think for him the primary stake here in 17 is how exactly knowledge produces jouissance, their ancient, archaic, mythical connection. He really wants to trace that out. And he wants to suggest that jouissance is an effect of discourse, that discourse is somehow part of this. Isn't that precisely what we're talking about here? Discourse has two primary effect structures, one at the level of subjectivity and another at the level of enjoyment. And that is what Lacan is up to here. We understand how discourse affects subjects. What we're looking at now is how discourse also produces enjoyment at the level of repetition, at the level of structure, at the level of operativity we often discuss here. That for Lacan is key. There is no more burning question, he says on page 70, than what in discourse refers to jouissance. This is the burning question that we're up to here. And Lacan really wants to own this shit. You can tell if you blast forward to page 81. Lacan asks about this field of jouissance. Check it out. What is the field of jouissance that he's talking about here? I can tell you. It's what Lacan wishes someday might be called the Lacanian field. I love how explicit he is about this. Whatever it is we're doing with this field of jouissance, Lacan wants to claim that as the Lacanian field. So you hear people often say that Lacan later in life says the only thing he really invented or came up that was new was objet. If you've read any Lacan, you know that's complete nonsense. 
Here is something, though, that he wants to own for himself as well. Not just objet a, but the field of jouissance that objet a designates in discourse. The field of jouissance that Lacan wants to be called the Lacanian field. What is all this? What is this field of jouissance, this Lacanian field, that would effectively become, as he puts it, an other field of energetics comprised of other structures than those of physics? Page 81, Seminar 17, check it out. The field of jouissance is the Lacanian field, which is an other field of energetics comprised of structures other than those of physics. He is getting after it. I highlight this because we are also following his lead into this field of jouissance. And what we have here is this loss-gain structure. Let's see what we can make of this one more time. The field of jouissance is a discursive field extending from a constitutive loss of access to a pathway toward sexual jouissance. That's important, and I can't emphasize this enough. What is lost, this constitutive loss that marks our integration into a discursive field, is not a loss of sexual jouissance. It's not like we were plants, beavers, and oysters doing whatever the fuck we have no idea plants, beavers, and oysters are up to. That's not what he's talking about here. What we lose, what is renounced, is not sexual jouissance, but the pathway to sexual jouissance. Any and all pathway that would provide in some distant future access to sexual jouissance as wholeness, as completion, as oneness, that's what you give up in order to enter the symbolic, in order to become a subject, in order to be immersed in discourse. You don't give up on sexual jouissance. You give up on trying to get after it. You give up on the pathway. What's lost and closed, what is forbidden, is any further movement on the pathway toward sexual jouissance, which, again, is not something we had and have to give up. But what we're renouncing is any further pursuit of it now and forevermore. So the field of jouissance is a discursive field extending from a constitutive loss of access to a pathway toward sexual jouissance. That's what's blocked. This becomes a jouissance now and forevermore forbidden, as Lacan puts it on page 67. And what happens here is you see this field of discourse and jouissance extending. Think about this. It's a field from this constitutive loss, if you want to put that at one end of the field, to this something that is gained from the field of loss to the end of gain, to an iterative and ever-dissatisfying gain that happens when we renounce and accept this earlier loss. A gain of forbidden jouissances, sexual jouissances, attenuated variant, you've heard me describe it as. And this is always happening at the level of desire. You've also heard me describe it. This is surplus. 
enjoyment. So here it is again, the field of jouissance that is a discursive field, that Lacan wants to be the Lacanian field, it extends from a constitutive loss of access to sexual jouissance to an iterative and ever-dissatisfying gain of its attenuated variant at the level of desire, known as surplus enjoyment. How these two types of enjoyment link up is absolutely key to understanding the field of jouissance that Lacan wants to claim as his own. The loss of sexual enjoyment and the gain of surplus enjoyment are connected. They are intersectional. They are what Lacan on page 19 describes as articulated. They're connected in particular by two processes. There are two things that connect loss of sexual jouissance, loss of access to this field of dreamt about wholeness, Edenic paradise, uteromorphic bliss, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's the field of the blah, blah, blah. Ain't no doubt about it. The loss of access to sexual jouissance is linked to the gain known as surplus jouissance by two mechanisms, repetition and reduction. These are the two ways that we see a connection between these two experience of, of enjoyment <clears throat> linking up. Now, let's take it very, very basically. What I would suggest is you take the basic Lacanian graph, the formative elemental graphs that give you the graph of desire, and you plug into that graph the field of loss and gain. And what that would look like is on the diachronic arrow, you would have a transition from loss to gain. And this is a transition known as reduction. The gain of surplus enjoyment is a reduction of the forbidden enjoyment that is sexual jouissance, as Lacan puts it. So the diachronic arrow in that classic elemental graph that you see me so often using when we talk about Lacan, the diachronic arrow is one of reduction, stretching from loss of sexual jouissance to gain of surplus enjoyment. Now, in any time I draw this graph, you know I'm going to have that retroactive arrow, an arrow that now extends from gain back to loss. This, because repetition is retroactive, is the arrow of repetition. So the link between jouissance lost and jouissance gained is twofold. The gain of surplus jouissance marks a reduction of the access to forbidden jouissance that is now barred. And the loss of surplus, the loss of sexual jouissance that is designated by the gain of surplus enjoyment is also connected by way of repetition. Let's take this one step at a time. If you want to be even a little, a little more arched here, loss is the field of the origin. And gain is this field of what you might call like outgrowth what we know is that it will be also a final cause. But I want to take these two and just work at the level of repetition 
for a minute. So, a repetition, no matter how you cut it, is an articulation of two phenomena. And that's how Lacan sees it. Repetition is an articulatory practice. It brings two entities or events into contact and connection with each other. There is something that is repeated, and then there is the act of repetition. Let's take these two and imagine them as columns. On the one side, you've got what's repeated, and on the other hand, you've got this repetition, the act of repetition. The repeated, what is repeated, is a no longer relative to the act of repetition. When you repeat an experience or try to repeat an experience, like traveling back to Berlin, you had a great trip to Berlin, just like Soren Kierkegaard, you're going to try and go back there again. That trying to go back is a repetition. You're trying to repeat the same trip you had and have just as good a time, maybe even a better time. What's repeated is that first trip. That first trip is a no longer relative to the here and now in which you are trying to repeat the great experience there. But check it out. The repetition where you go back to Berlin is a not yet relative to the repeated original event. You see, you have not yet gone back to Berlin for a second time when you're there having that great experience. So that's important here. What is repeated is a no longer relative to the repetition, and the repetition is a not yet relative to the repeated. Now you can see we're already getting into the weeds here, man. This is some difficult shit. The repeated event, I'm working really hard not to say first and second here, for reasons you'll see clear. It's a then and there that is indexed by the here and now of a repetition. Repetition in the here and now indexes or calls up as original a then and there that is no longer. I hope that helps a little bit though I do want to make it a little more complex. Again, in hopes that if we add a few more confusions, we can bring ourselves to some serious clarity about what the fuck Lacan is doing with repetition. It's a really profound theory of repetition. The repeated is what's lost. Now, you see where I'm going with this, right? The origin, loss of access to sexual jouissance, that's the repeated. And the repetition is what surplus enjoyment engages in. So check it out. What's lost is the entity that is repeated as a later date. But check it out. The repetition at a later date of a previous earlier entity or event is where the loss of that earlier entity or event finds expression. So sexual enjoyment is what's lost when surplus enjoyment enters the scene. But it's only in the field of surplus enjoyment that the loss of sexual enjoyment finds expression. That's important here. It's in the field of language, discourse, the symbolic, post-castration, hear me now, where surplus enjoyment is popping left and right, that we experience the barred pathway to forbidden sexual jouissance as a loss. The loss finds expression only at a later date. We're thinking like Lacanians at this point. Both of these experiences, though, 
the repeated and the repetition, they are both sites of entropy. And I think this is a tricky part in what Lacan is doing in Seminar 17. The repeated, this loss of access to sexual jouissance, marks a lost entropic origin for surplus enjoyment. It's entropic because it's lost, it has fallen away, the path is obscured, made ambiguous, a certain amount of noise has entered that channel, if you want to play around a little bit with information theory. However, the gain of surplus enjoyment is also a kind of entropy because it marks a reduction of sexual enjoyment. It's an attenuated, watered-down, busted-ass version of the OG. This is also a field of entropy. So the repeated is a site of lost entropic original. And the repetition, though, is a site of reduced experience. A reduction of jouissance that is also entropic because it spills out into a more messy field, the way an ice cube melts on a counter. Let's keep going, my dear Lacanian friends. The repeated, the loss of sexual enjoyment. This is temporarily prior to the repetition of this loss in the field of surplus enjoyment that marks a reduction of the promised wholeness, etc., that we had to renounce in order to enter language. This loss of sexual enjoyment is temporarily prior to the gain of surplus enjoyment. And now I'm going to fuck with it a little bit. Take it slow, pause if you need to. The repetition of loss in the gain that is surplus enjoyment, however, is logically prior. And that's a key difference here. When Lacan says that repetition is retroactive, what he means is that the act of repeating something is logically prior to the designation of what it repeats as an origin. You have to repeat something before it can become the origin or the thing repeated. In other words, it's only by going back to Berlin that it can become a repeated trip, a repeated experience. That's a retroactive efficacy. It's a retro-efficacy, as Lacan often puts it here. The repeated as a lost entropic origin is an effect of what Lacan is going to call a final cause. This is what he means when he's fucking around with final cause. The final cause is the cause that comes at the end of a process that effects our understanding of everything that's gone before. I know this shit is crazy. I know this shit is wonky. I know it's challenging. We wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't. But isn't it also fun as hell? I fucking love this shit. Check it out. What I'm trying to tell you here is that surplus enjoyment is the cause of the loss of sexual enjoyment. Sexual enjoyment is the effect, a lost effect relative to the found final cause that is surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is the cause that has a retro-efficacy relative to what's been lost. 
It is marked as a lost entropic origin only when repeated. You know your favorite movie? I forget what mine is. Actually, I don't forget, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because that'd be fucked up. You got your favorite movie. Remember the first time you saw it? Like the first time you went to Berlin? I don't fucking know where you go. But listen, the first time you saw that movie, you had novelty. You had surprise. You didn't know what was going to happen in the next scene, in the next sequence. Now go back and watch that movie again. The second viewing makes it very difficult to experience novelty, surprise. You now know what is coming next. Yeah, you can still jump out of your seat. Certain scary movies can be watched again and again and again. Go back to The Exorcist and you'll see. But the novelty and the surprise of the first viewing is now gone. It is lacking. It is noticeably absent. This is one way to start understanding why surplus enjoyment always marks a reduction of access to sexual enjoyment. Something is always missing or lost along the way. That loss is what I mean by entropy. It's what Lacan is doing when he says this is an entropic final cause for an effect that is the loss of sexual enjoyment. Think to any act of repetition, and I believe you'll see what I mean here. Whether you're traveling to Berlin again or re-watching your favorite movie, at the level of the repetition, something is always lost. And that's important here. The gain of surplus enjoyment in the field of jouissance, the Lacanian field, is always tinged with loss because it's there that you see sexual enjoyment as a lost pathway, as an occluded way that you shall not go forward with anymore. That's where prohibition is experienced. Not in the act of the no, but in its trace that carries forward. You never just renounce this shit once. You have to renounce it again and again and again. Which is why it can be so challenging when people start getting off on the renunciations, getting off on the prohibitions, on the social constraints. Hear me. Just as Lacan puts it in Seminar 17, we are not talking about transgression here. We are talking about a kind of enjoyment that comes from accepting, embracing, and repeating prohibition. Repeatedly renouncing dessert every single night and then bragging about it the following day to your coworkers. That's probably enough for now about repetition and reduction. The point that I want to make, just to reiterate here, is that the connection between the loss of access to sexual enjoyment and the gain of access to surplus enjoyment is again twofold. Diachronically, temporally speaking, the gain of surplus enjoyment marks a reduction of sexual enjoyment. There's that diachronic arrow if you've got your imagination popping here for this graph. However, this gain of surplus enjoyment also marks a repetition with a difference, with a lack of what's been lost. And that's the other point of connection between the loss of sexual enjoyment and the gain of surplus enjoyment. They are bound together by these two connecting rods of reduction, diachronically, and repetition, 
synchronically or retroactively, if you want to play with it. The stakes here are high. It's important that we get this right. If not now, then in the near future. Because again, remember what Lacan says on page 70, there is no more burning question than what in discourse refers to jouissance. And what we are now working with is the field of jouissance to which he's referring here. The field of jouissance that discourse conditions is a two-part field of loss and gain. And the connection between or the connecting paths between those two points in the field are reduction and repetition. So get your pencil paper out. Write this shit down. That's what I do. That's absolutely what I do. I wake up in the middle of the night and start taking notes on this stuff. Take the idea when it finds you. Here, when Lacan says that there is no more burning question than what in discourse refers to jouissance, you know what he's talking about. He's referring to sexual jouissance, whose pathway we've lost. This field of jouissance, we can talk till we're blue in the face about surplus enjoyment. That's the easy one. And we'll define it more clearly today, just to reiterate. It's that loss of access to sexual enjoyment, that's the more difficult one. And that's what he's going to be continually queuing up when he talks about surplus enjoyment, always to discuss its retro-effective, repetitive link to the loss of sexual enjoyment, and also to mark it as a reduction of that OG. This lost pathway that we've been referring to, this lost entropic origin of the attenuated variant that we know as surplus enjoyment. Man, reading this, I can't help but want to take a look at page 70. Let me just read a little bit from page 70 of Seminar 17. The first section of this chapter, first line, first sentence, single paragraph, There is no more burning question than what in discourse refers to jouissance. Ah, but now, read on. Discourse is constantly touching on it by virtue of the fact that this is where it originates. We're talking about origins here, people. And discourse arouses it again whenever it attempts to return to this origin, this lost entropic origin in which the pathway to sexual jouissance as wholeness, as completion, as consistency, as oneness is lost. It is in this respect that it challenges all appeasement. This is a site where we can only experience fault, failure, and faltering. Isn't this what Lacan is suggesting? on page 71, the very next page over. In fact, if you just kind of glance to your right, this is what he thinks is so great about Freudian discourse, of what it does with faulting, failing, failure, faltering. Here, phallus, even though the etymology doesn't quite stack up there, you could still hear phallus and fallible together, and you really start getting the pistons firing. This is also, he says, what gives Freud's discourse its value. This understanding of discourse as it touches upon this lost origin in the field of jouissance. He is worthy of it. 
he is worthy of a discourse that maintains itself as close as possible to what refers to jouissance, as close as it was possible up till Freud. It is not very comfortable. It is not very comfortable to be situated at this point where discourse emerges, and even when it returns there, when it falters in the environs of jouissance. What we're talking about here is the way that discourse falters, stumbles on this hole in its field, this constitutive void that is the renunciation of access to sexual enjoyment. That leaves a hole, a gap, a gape, a place in which we can't help but falter when we stumble upon it. This is what Lacan is up to in Seminar 17 when he's talking about the field of discourse as one in which jouissance is produced. The emphasis on fault, failure, lack, and gap in this field of discourse is important here. The field of jouissance, like any discursive field, and the field of discourse, like every field of jouissance, is going to be lacking, incomplete, and always bumping into some sort of a constitutive void at its origin. That's the point that Lacan is making here about discourse and its connection to jouissance. They both have a constitutive void that is their origin. What matters again is what happens with these origins. How does the origin that is the loss of access to sexual jouissance intersect with the emergence, with the eruption, Lacan often refers to it, of this experience known as surplus enjoyment? Well, we've got two pistons already firing reduction and repetition. So let's see if we can sharpen this up a little bit. Surplus enjoyment, you've often heard me say, is a sublimated reduction of jouissance that approximates a lost entropic origin that we've discussed via repetition, which again works retroactively. This ever partial incomplete gesture is one of denotation, Lacan says. But check it out. These denotations that surplus enjoyment issues are always retroactive commemorations of the origins as its own. That's an important part of what we're up to here on page 77 in particular. The connection that is one of reduction and repetition come together in this weird denotative commemorative gesture. It's at the bottom of page 77. The paragraph begins, repetition, period. This does not mean that one redoes what one has finished, like digestion or some other physiological function. Repetition is the precise denotation of a trait that I have uncovered for you in Freud's text as being identical with the unary trait, with the little stick, with the element of writing, the element of a trait insofar as it is the commemoration of an eruption of jouissance. The eruption in question here is the same eruption that we saw on page 20 at the very start of the seminar. 
There is no transgression here, but rather an eruption, a falling into the field of something not unlike jouissance, a surplus. But perhaps even that has to be paid for, you'll recall. What Lacan is here saying is that surplus enjoyment denotes, via repetition, the unary trait in this classic Lacanian sense of prohibition, of the no of the father, of the un part of UN in English and German, of the noification that we're working with here. That's the unary trait in question here, is its function as a prohibitive logic. But here's the thing about those denotations. Surplus enjoyment indexes those original prohibitions, particularly with interest in the objects that are lost as a result, as we'll discuss in a moment, and as we've discussed numerous times in the past, especially around the drive, as a field that can also suffer sublimation. But at the same time, it transforms these unary traits retroactively into commemorative events. Commemorating what? Commemorating the very thing that is surplus jouissance. Commemorating its eruption. That's what we have here on page 77, a denotation that takes its origin and transforms it into a commemoration of the very thing that we're discussing here, which is surplus enjoyment. A denotation that retroactively commemorates the origin that is the loss of access to sexual jouissance as the birthplace of surplus enjoyment. That all comports with what we've said about the loss-gain logic that is the field of jouissance that discourse drops the subject into. The unary trait in question here is one of prohibition, and you know exactly now what it prohibits. It prohibits the pursuit of sexual jouissance as wholeness, identity, oneness, completion, and I would add immediacy. If the subject is bound to signification, it means that it has to suffer not just the defiles of the signifier, but also logics of mediation. To be a subject is to be a mediated being, a being in which there are things between you and the world, things known as signifiers. Sexual jouissance and the promise that it holds is that of immediacy without the medium of the signifier, of even the body, if you will. Lacan's point here, though, is that this prohibition of any further pursuit of sexual jouissance also doubles as the eruption of surplus enjoyment. This is where surplus enjoyment finds its origins. The lost entropic origin that is the renunciation of pathways to sexual jouissance. What Lacan is really intrigued about here is that this is also the birthplace of surplus enjoyment. That gain is achieved as soon as the loss, in fact, at the very same time as the loss is sustained. What then is surplus enjoyment? We've discussed it multiple times in our previous series and a couple times here as well, but I want to try and put our finger on this. It's an always dissatisfying, incomplete, and partial enterprise because its source, its origin, its referent, if you like, is always lost, 
lacking, and just out of reach. The logic of surplus enjoyment is some fuzzy math, simple math, that you saw us work out at the very start of our series on Seminar 16. What it amounts to, though, is that surplus enjoyment, again, makes sexual enjoyment impossible. And the impossibility of sexual enjoyment is the very eruption point for surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is founded on the impossibility of its sexual sibling, its sexual sister, if you want to mess with that, as Lacan certainly does here. And speaking of sisters, i got to call your attention to another passage here. It's a good one. It's a paragraph you've seen before, but really only the second and the third sentences in this paragraph. It's the first sentence that intrigues me. It's on page 72 of Seminar 17, a very famous paragraph that ends on jouissance, saying that it begins with a tickle and ends in a blaze of petrol. You know the quote. That's always what jouissance is. Okay, interesting. Far more fascinating for our purposes around this field of loss that conditions the gain of surplus enjoyment is the first sentence. I have already said enough for you to know that jouissance is the jar of the Danaides, and that once you have started, you never know where it will end. Now, Lacan doesn't make much reference to the jar of the Danaides. You see it a couple times, actually only once that I could find in Ecree. If you've got another finding on this one, let me know. Do you know this myth about the jar of the Danaides? It's some fucked up shit, man. So here's what happens. You got 50 women. They get shackled to 50 men. And on their wedding nights, 49 of them conspire and cut off all the heads of their new husbands. Now, I don't know about that last one, the one that didn't do it. You can read about it and figure it out on your own. The point that Lacan wants to get after is their punishment. They go through all the rituals of getting these, these decapitated bodies buried and whatever the fuck. But notice what happens to them. Their punishment is to eternally fill a leaky vessel. The 49 murderers have to go and fetch water in pails and then pour those waters into a leaky vessel, a vessel with a hole in the bottom. And as a result, they have to continue this work forever. That's their punishment, is continually trying to fill a vessel that has a hole in the bottom. Now, if you've seen our series on Seminar 14 and 16, and 16, of course, starts with the mustard pot with a hole in the bottom, you know where this is headed. I'm not going to go there, though. I want to cue this image up to you for something that you should consider. In my view, I think it's pretty damn important to note that what we're talking about here in the field of jouissance is a hole, a constitutive void that means it's always leaking something out. Every structure in Lacan's vocabulary is a leaky structure. The bag always has a hole in it for Lacan. No matter what that bag is, when he says structure, he means cracked vessel. He means the jar of the Danaides. Great passage for you to have in mind as we keep working forward here. There's an even better one, though that captures the emergence of this hole 
that marks the eruption or the accomplishment, the gain of surplus enjoyment. Check it out. It's a few pages earlier on page 67. 67 has a really rough paragraph. It's the roughest paragraph I've encountered in this seminar. It's about in the middle of the page, the paragraph that begins, what can it mean to say that by loving truth, we'll come to this loving truth bit in a minute, but hot damn, that final sentence. I read that shit four times in French and in English, and honestly, this translation ain't bad for a really wild statement on Lacan's part. And it's an important statement too. This is one of those moments where, oh, if we could just get some clarity on this thing. Thankfully, the paragraph after this on page 67 is super helpful. The one that begins, I say, it's the sister. Surplus enjoyment. Lacan indicates on page 67 in the second paragraph, this one, I say, it's the sister. He says it's a stem that is uprooted from the field of forbidden jouissance. That's how I read what he says here. This stem that is uprooted from jouissance. This is surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is a stem that is uprooted from the field of forbidden jouissance. It's a plant that has been pulled from the field, leaving in its wake a hole, an opening, a void. So let's get after it as clearly and directly as we can. What the fuck is surplus enjoyment? At the risk of sounding like a broken record, let me remind you how we defined this thing in seminar 16. What exactly does it mean to enjoy at the level of this surplus? I can tell you, this is not what's happening at the level of the lilies in the field. Check out pages 76 and 77 of seminar 17 when you get a chance. This bit about the lilies in the field and the type of jouissance that might be the plant's jouissance, we'll come to it when Lacan returns to this topic a little bit later around beavers and oysters of all things. I can't wait to get there. I'm like chomping at the bit to get at these beaver, oyster, plant, lilies in the field business. But that ain't what he's talking about here. When he says surplus jouissance, he's not thinking of lilies in the field. What he's thinking about is a cut flower in a vase, a flower that has been pulled from the field of jouissance and now sits on your dining room table in a vase. What does this tell us about how surplus enjoyment operates and what it means to enjoy, not as the lily in the field, but around this flower in a vase. In some sense, the math is very simple here. One minus one equals zero, and zero is the starting place of a sequence of numbers, column one, two, and three. Now, if you've seen our opening lectures in seminar 16, you know what I mean by this. Not everybody was there, so I'll rehearse this thing. The one, the first one, the number one, just think about the number one. Here's the imaginary phallus. This is whatever it is you think the big barred other wants. The imaginary phallus. The minus one that I'm attaching to this to make a mathematical equation of one minus one, the minus one is that of minus V, of castration, of the prohibitions, that the name of the father as no and name would pronounce. 
This is the unary trait that Lacan was referring to in the passage we just read. The unary trait as a prohibitive function, a prohibitive effect. This is a subtraction of the one. In other words, the imaginary phallus in the logic of castration is subtracted from maternal figure and child alike. The child is told they can't be it, and the maternal figure is told they don't have it. And you might even flip that around. They're both also informed about the other's position. Mommy doesn't have the phallus and you can't be it for her is oftentimes the bumper sticker that gets assigned to this logic. That prohibition is a negative one. It's a removal or subtraction of the imaginary phallus. It's now out of bounds. That's what the minus fee of castration indicates. It means that you don't have access to that shit anymore. Stop fucking with it. Stop dreaming about it. Stop pretending that you could be that for her. Part of the dilemma of this process is that when it's done incompletely, or I'll just say poorly or weakly, these are one of the conditions for perversion. The pervert is the one who believes that they can be what the big barred other lacks. That's why Lacan says the pervert is a keeper of the faith who thinks they can make God exist, can supply God with what's been subtracted from him, namely enjoyment. That's always what's subtracted from the big barred other is enjoyment. What makes 17 so interesting is that we're now seeing another way that enjoyment gets smuggled back in to the field of the big barred other with all of its subsets known as knowledge and the like. But back to that mathematical equation. One minus one equals what? Zero. Zero here as a zero with a slash through it, not just to indicate the empty set, but to also mark the zero point of desire lack objea. If you've got ears to hear, what I'm tracing for you is a fee minus fee equals objea. There's the having of an imaginary phallus. Then there is the losing of that imaginary phallus as castration as minus fee as minus one. And then there is the resulting experience of lack that zero that marks a place in which nothing is. One minus one equals zero. You've often heard me say this in previous series. This is the condition of possibility for desire. This is where desire takes its start. It's not enough to just say that objah is lack is the cause of desire. Nah, man. It's the end of a simple mathematical equation that shows lack as something that is conditioned on loss, the loss of something that was previously, if only imaginarily, had at the level of the phallus. That's the more complicated, but also the more precise designation of what the cause of desire is. It is a multi-part set in which loss couples with lack. And that's what I'm getting at here. One minus one equals zero. Having losing, lacking, which brings us to surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is the sequence of numbers that begins with zero. One, two, three, dot, 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 and so on. 
Surplus enjoyment is the supply and consumption of objects, artifacts, commodities that we hope will plug the hole. It's the addition of a one, two, three, and so on, that we hope will fill the void designated by the zero left from one minus one. That's the easiest way to understand what surplus enjoyment is all about. You can also think about this in terms of objects lost. So, if your prohibitive logic, let's say, is weaning, you have a child with a breast, and then the weaning process occurs, and the breast no longer shows up when the child cries. That is a lost object. The breast now no longer returns. It's a minus one. Now, notice what that minus one does. When the breast no longer shows up, when the child cries, the child is left with a newfound opening on their body known as their mouth. Because no breast shows up and fills that void, now you just have the experience of an opening on the human form. That's where obja is. It's this opening or this lack, this space that opens up as an erogenous zone, if you follow our stuff on the drive, but here as a space of lack an opening into which you can put other shit. Surplus enjoyment is all the other shit. And the type of desire and dissatisfaction (laughs) that occurs when you plug something into that hole and it doesn't stack up to the breast. All the objects of surplus enjoyment, you hear me say, are metonymic stand-ins for lost objects. So, the breast is the lost object, the stereotypical lost object that the Lacanian subject has to deal with. The Freudian subject, the classic psychoanalytic subject who deals with a mouth that is affected by a breast that refuses to show up anymore through this prohibitive structure known as weaning. I laugh, but it's legit. It's a good way to think about this. And it's true to form to many of our upbringings. Weaning occurred, (laughs) I dare say, for every single person that's watching this video or hearing this talk. You know that that shit occurred to you. And if you want to test the horror of returning to that state, don't think it was bliss, man. Now imagine turning around the door in the back behind you, it opens and there's your bare-breasted mother, in her current age, by the way, and you in your current age, and she walks in with her breasts, pushes them up to your face and says, now suck. This is the object that you've lost. This is what you've been wanting all these years when you chewed your nails, chewed on your straw, chewed on your gum, gnawed the end of that cigar. These are all the things that you've been putting in your mouth as a substitute for the lost object that is the breast. Here they are, hideous, withered, and dry. Suck them. What disgust. What horror at this very experience. That's what happens when you actually get what it is you say you want. It's fucking horrific. Far better to stay in the field of surplus enjoyment where you have knockoff objects that work like breasts in that they go into your mouth, but certainly don't provide the same type of, quote, satisfaction that you may have known as a youngster before the weaning process got going. 
surplus enjoyment are all of the ones, the twos, the threes, the whole sequence, desirous metonymic sequence of objects, substitute objects that you accept, that you purchase, that you consume as reduced stand-ins, knockoffs, attenuated variants for an object that primordially is now lost, whether it's the breast, whether it's excrement, whether it's the gaze, whether it's the voice. You can just keep going in the Lacanian circuit and naming lost objects. But the math, here's my point, the math is always the same. One minus one equals zero. And the pain of living at the zero point of desire conditions this endless search for substitute ones to plug into that hole. Think about the one going into the zero if you really want to fuck with this. It's about finding substitute objects, knockoffs of the original to stand in. This is what surplus enjoyment is fundamentally about, which is why I liken it oftentimes to late capitalist logics of consumption. And don't just talk about like one iPhone, but the whole generation of iPhones. The regeneration of iPhones at the level of the iPhone 11, 12, 13, where are we at? 14. I think at the recording of this call, we now have iPhone 14. Do you think it's going to stop there? Fuck no, it's not going to stop there. There will be an iPhone 15. That's how surplus enjoyment works. This is also why I put it in the field of desire. Surplus enjoyment says less about jouissance than what happens when you get that intense spike of dopamine at the unboxing of a product, of a new item. It's desire that is tripped out on enjoyment. It is spiked, it is doped with enjoyment. It's desire at its limit. That's surplus enjoyment, but it's ultimately dissatisfying. Why? For the simple fact that after you open the product, as you've heard me say, there's this long, sometimes sharper than other, decline where the new shiny object gradually turns into trash into waste, into refuse. That can happen faster or slower depending on the commodity. But surplus enjoyment is what describes that process where you get the spike of desire and dopamine at the start and then this gradual decline towards shit. And it's not just with one object. You're usually doing this with multiple objects at the same time. How often have multiple Amazon packages arrived at your house? Or maybe one one day and another the next day and so on and so forth. They just keep coming. The commodities just keep coming. That's why in this math, 1 minus 1 equals 0 and 0 begets a sequence of numbers. It doesn't have to be the regular 1, 2, 3, 4. It can be a Fibonacci sequence. You can make it whatever sequence you want, but it doesn't end. That's Lacan's point. The one begets the two, begets the three, begets the four. This is how surplus enjoyment works. It is a knockoff reduction of the sexual enjoyment access to which is now prohibited. And for this very reason, as a knockoff of the original, it always comes up short. 
This is what it means to enjoy at the level of the surplus, at the level of the flower that's been plucked from the field and put on your dining room table. Now, I don't want to spend much more time rehearsing matters that we've already discussed. And these are matters that we've already discussed. But it's important here in 17 when there's so much talk of surplus enjoyment and jouissance without sexual or surplus put in front of it, oftentimes, more often than not, it's important that we have in mind just how these things operate. Sexual enjoyment is simply defined as wholeness, oneness, immediacy, presence, identity, consistency, completion. You can just keep going. You know the themes I'm working at here. That's lost. You can't get that anymore. Surplus enjoyment always promises it, but comes up short. The cigarette that you put in your mouth after watching this lecture is not the same as the breast that once filled it almost completely. Emphasis on almost completely. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Cod. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.